today on Ag News Daily. Um, Dryland corn, that's, you know, I mean, if it started raining today, it's hurt so bad that I don't know if it, it might come back and make 30 bushel or something. But uh, so there's going to be some pretty tough acres out there. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's Ashton Carr on the podcast today with Delaney Howell and Mike Pearson. Guys, what's it looking like up there? Well, in central Iowa, it is sunny, but a little chilly. Cooler temperatures uh, sweeping across through here still today. Yeah, it's pretty cool, I guess, down here, too. One of my friends that was on the podcast earlier this summer, Braden Campbell, he posted on his Snapchat story that it was 67 degrees when he was on the tractor this morning. Not exactly sure when he was on. Definitely real early this morning. But uh, maybe we would expect a uh, early freeze this year by the way things are looking. Hmm. That's not well. Good. Yeah, it's always crazy to think about, but uh, you know we still got a little bit of a growing season left ahead of us. We're starting to see uh, see beans really set in some pods, starting to fill those out here as we get through August. And it's uh, well, there's there will still be plenty of hot days left, is my guess. I'm willing to lay some money on that wager. I hope so. I feel like my summer has been squandered away. COVID and other things. And now there's cooler weather and I just want a few more good days of warm summer weather. Oh, it'll come. August, uh, you know, we always get some hot days in August and we'll probably cook again in September at some point. And I wouldn't be surprised if we get some warmth into October as we do typically throughout the, uh, I don't know, year, I guess. But uh, who knows? We'll have to talk weather again here on the podcast before too long to get some harvest insights as we get close to uh, seeing some combines roll. Yeah, it's crazy to think that we're, you know, just over probably a month and a half before we really start to see a lot of folks getting out there. Yeah, and that's in our part of the world. They'll be rocking and rolling down by Ashton long before that. Yep, very true, very true. Ashton, you'll have to get out there and see if you can ride around with a farmer as they're harvesting. You know, I have never seen cotton harvest in person, and that would be something I'd love to see at some point in my life. It's pretty cool being out here in the middle of all the cotton farms because, you know, the wind blows super hard out here. So cotton, when it's harvesting season, is just everywhere. And so it, it looks like snow. So it's it's really pretty. <laughs> I, I, I guess pretty. I guess pretty if you if you like that kind of thing. But, yeah, I will have to uh, do a little behind the scenes action when that rolls around. Well, I tell you what, let's jump into the news before we get to our conversation for today's podcast. And I've got an update from USDA that is probably good news to a lot of our listeners who are pork producers. We've talked quite a bit this spring and summer about the challenges in the pork industry, notably processing plant shutdowns due to COVID and then the backup of hogs on farms. Now that backup peaked. We saw a lot of hogs on farms in mid-May. That was when we really had processing plants were starting to come back online, but they were not catching up. We still had folks feeding hogs, low maintenance rations, but you know, they're still gaining some weight. And on May 15th, 2020, average hog weights peaked in this country at just over 218 pounds per head. The good news is since that date, hog weights have been continually declining. In fact, as of right now, we're only one pound over a year ago hog weights. And uh, a lot of folks are saying this is indicative of the idea that processing plants are getting caught back up. They've been able to you know, work multiple shifts, increase their line speeds, and we're starting to 
well, I shouldn't say starting to, we're making good progress, chewing through these backed up hogs that have been waiting on farms for their turn on the, uh, the ride to their final destination, bacon and sausage patties on everybody's breakfast plate. Nice. Good way to put that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's good news for the hog industry. Um, it's, there's still obviously some slowdown. We are still at, uh, oh gosh, let me check here. We're about three pounds over the five-year average for this time of year. But like I say, only a pound above a year ago weights at this time. So making good progress, still with a little room to go, I would say. Well, in other processing plant-related news, this hit the news wires just earlier today, or excuse me, just early, late afternoon yesterday, I should say. JBS in Greeley, Colorado actually has two facilities kind of right across the road from each other, it sounds like, or, or in the same neighborhood, I should say. But uh, of course, their Greeley, Colorado location is very famous, one of them for processing beef. The other is a Colorado lamb processing facility to process, obviously, lamb. And so JBS Holdings was expected to close on a purchase of the Mountain State's Rosen Lamb Processing Facility and buy this lamb facility that was previously owned by basically a family farmer cooperative group of lamb farmers. They were expected to close on the purchase of this and then immediately shut down the processing of lamb facilities and, and potentially shut down the plant altogether. However, we saw lawmakers intervene last end of last week from both the Senate and House side, asking and begging, really, them not to shut down this facility. Because as they understood it, JBS was intending to destroy all of the land processing equipment and shut down that facility. Now they've at least somewhat been able to convince JBS, it seems like, to keep that facility open, having, again, two facilities in a very close proximity to each other with this lamb facility being converted to processing beef. But the problem this poses for a lot of sheep producers, and I know, you know, compared to beef producers, we don't have as many lamb producers in the United States. But this facility that they're intending to shut down and transfer out of lamb processing serves about 15 different states in the Western Hemisphere, Western United States, including Montana, Utah, South Dakota, Wyoming, and California. And this facility processed about 360,000 lambs last year and is considered the largest processing facility in the Western United States. So with this new facility shutting down, it's going to create a really big issue for lamb producers to be able to get their lambs processed and um shipped and all that stuff. Transportation is going to be a huge issue. And so at this point, we're still waiting to see what Congress can and can't do. Uh, but it doesn't sound good for land producers out in that part of the country. Or it sounds like an opportunity. I mean, with JBS out of the game, considering their bankroll, this might be an opportunity for an upstart to come in and start uh, slaughtering more lambs if the market demand is there. That absolutely could be another uh scenario but the the cooperative the group of i think about 150 ranch families that had this cooperative prior to JBS taking it over uh just couldn't afford to keep that facility permanently running so it sounds like gotcha. maybe there's some issues going on there as well 
All right. Well, stay tuned, folks. If you are a sheep producer, I don't think we've interviewed a sheep producer no. on the podcast. We'd love to chat with you, hear hear the story on, on your operation, because that is a it's a small sector of agriculture. But in places where it is done, it is certainly an important sector. And I know I love lamb chops, so I'd love to talk mm. to folks who are raising those critters. So hit us up. Find us on social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at Ag News Daily. And uh, at least tell us about your operation. We'd love to hear about it. Absolutely. But uh, another big headline that just crossed the wires late afternoon yesterday was trade between the U.S. and China. According to some folks close to the issue on both the U.S. and Chinese side, there will be an unofficial review of the implementation of phase one in a meeting between U.S. and Chinese trade officials coming up here on August 15th via a video conference. That is the six-month mark for phase one implementation. If you'll think back, it was activated technically on February 15th. So we're coming up here on six months, and they plan to sit down and reevaluate that, as well as air some grievances in this increasingly tense relationship that's really uh, had its turmoils over the past six months. So it doesn't, again... These are rumors. These are people that are close to the issue that are speaking off record. So don't have a lot of detail about if there will be any indication of any sort of renegotiation of phase one, if phase two will be discussed. Uh, it really sounds like it's going to be a sit down meeting to at least, if nothing else, air grievances. And I'm sure that COVID-19 will be brought up in, in the Wuhan area. Yeah, I'm sure you're right, Delaney. So we'll we'll stay tuned. Definitely need to take a look at that deal and how well it is or isn't working. So that should be a welcome update. Uh, I've got some other news, definitely grain related. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have seen footage you know, floating around on social media of the explosion that happened yesterday in the Lebanese city of Beirut. Um, basically, we don't know yet what caused it. Uh, the government sounds as though they're saying there was a welder welding on a facility, started a small fire. That fire then grew near a fireworks warehouse and a warehouse that was storing 2,750 pounds, or excuse me, tons, I believe, of ammonium nitrate used in fertilizer. Of course, ammonium nitrate uh, can be a little volatile. And it exploded, death toll right now at about 73 last I looked. But this connects with agriculture because Lebanon has been in the midst of an economic crisis, and they have been very slow in importing grain. Their wheat purchases have been really just enough to keep the country satisfied in its immediate needs. And this explosion, if you've seen the videos, especially our, our ag listeners no doubt noticed, it happened right next to a grain silo. And those grain silos were the largest grain storage facility in Lebanon. And in fact, some of the only grain storage facilities at ports in Lebanon. And those facilities were almost entirely ruined. There were about 15,000 tons of wheat in storage. Uh, most of that is, is ruined. It's, it's in piles. The grain silos were, were effectively destroyed, being as they were right next to this explosion. And so the country of Lebanon is... They're careful to say not in crisis yet. They've got enough flour for a month and a half on hand in other facilities throughout the country. They are currently looking for ways to import more wheat. But the fact is, they just don't have a lot of money. 
So as of right now, the UN is meeting to try and coordinate relief efforts, and those relief efforts will no doubt include grain shipments. The question is, how are those grain shipments going to be paid for, or will foreign governments just donate wheat to Lebanon and let them store it on ships in the bay until they can get it unloaded? There's a lot of uncertainty there, but uh, challenges Hmm. await in Lebanon, I'm afraid. I think either way, whether governments donate wheat or sell wheat, at least we're getting rid of some wheat. So that seems like that could be, I don't know how much they'll need or how much they go through, but that at least seems somewhat friendly for the wheat market. Yeah, I mean, 15,000 tons of wheat was destroyed yesterday, it sounds like. Um, So there's definitely a hole to fill. Uh, There is apparently about 28,000 tons currently in shipment to Lebanon. Mm -hmm. The challenge is, what do they do with it when it gets there? Because they cannot unload it at the port in Beirut. There's a port in uh, Tripoli, but it doesn't have grain facilities, so they're going to have to truck it. Yeah, there's uh, there's just a lot of challenges to lie Mm -hmm. ahead. Lots of challenges, it sounds like. Indeed. Ashton, what news are you watching today? We have been following the African swine fever, and Bulgarian veterinary authorities are doing the same thing. They said yesterday, no, today today is Wednesday, excuse me. They said today that they would call almost 200 pigs from a rare local breed after detecting the outbreak of African swine fever at a small pig farm in the east of the country. And the outbreak was detected at a farm for the East Balkan swine breed, which I had never heard of. So I did a little bit of research and it's the only preserved local swine breed in Bulgaria and one of the few indigenous breeds in Europe. And I believe it's even the one of the last native breeds in Bulgaria. And uh, it was detected in the village of Units, close to the Black Sea city of Varna, after 15 of the 212 pigs there died, Bulgaria's Food Safety Agency said. And Bulgaria has had to cull more than 170,000 pigs since 2019, when the virus hit several breeding farms in the Balkan country. So it's kind of heartbreaking as someone who is very much a pig person to see this uh, really hit that rare swine breed. And so hopefully they can uh, find a way to overcome the African swine fever and really bring back that breed. I will add a little flavor here to this too, uh, because I spent a semester in Bulgaria. I studied abroad there actually. Um, And that part of the country is pretty rural, pretty remote, but the country itself, as far as livestock production is concerned, pretty small scale compared to what we have here in the United States. Like confinement buildings aren't really a thing over there. Um, A lot of small and pop type of places. So for them to have that big of a culling is definitely a big deal. Add to Mike's positivity today and maybe they can have this opportunity to uh, kind of make some changes to confinement and see what they can do to make better practices. Maybe they should listen to the Pig X podcast. There you go. All right. Good plug, Ashton. (laughs) And you can find that on the Global Ag Network, correct? Absolutely. You sure can. And we just had a new episode come out earlier this week. So I'm glad you mentioned it, Ashton. But I tell you what, I am all out of news for the day. What about you guys? Yep, I am as well. Should we jump into the markets? Ashton, what do you think? Let's do it. 
All right, folks, we've got mixed trade today in the grains, corn and wheat, slightly higher, beans a little lower on the day. September corn up two and three quarters at 311 even, December up three to close at 323 and a quarter. In soybeans, the August contract was down one and three quarters at 882 even, the November down three cents to finish at 878 and three quarters. In Chicago wheat, September up two and a half, 510 and three quarters, December up a penny, closed the day at 517 and a half. Looking over at livestock, We've got mixed trade in the cattle complex. October live cattle down two and a half cents at 107.45. December up 27 and a half, finishing at 111.65. In feeder cattle, similar story. September down 15 cents at 146.47 half. October up 22.50 to close at 147.30. And in lean hogs, green on the screen with the October up 27 and a half cents at 49.30. December up 90 cents, close the day at 51.47 and a half. Quick look at the dairy markets. We do have green on the screen today in dairy. August contract up 22 cents to close at 19.50. September up 20, finishing the day at 16.87. Without further ado, let's click in to today's conversation. Today on the podcast, we have Jonathan Danzel, a farmer from Kansas. Jonathan, thank you for taking the time out of your day to uh, come on and talk to us. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, Jonathan, you are a farmer there in northwest Kansas. Tell us a little bit more about your neck of the woods. What are people growing? What are things looking like? What's the terrain look like out there? Uh, We're pretty arid environment for my county right in this area is probably... We butt up right to the Colorado state line and we're what about 45 of uh, about 60 miles south of the um, Nebraska border. So we're up here in pretty far Northwest Kansas. Um, like I said, I guess it's, it's a country that probably, probably uh, a lot of this country probably shouldn't have been broke, but uh, anyway, so we've had good rainfall last three years, but this year in my sp- specific area, we're, we're quite a ways behind normal and it's been really, really spotty on the rainfall this summer. But, uh, anyway, so yeah, we're, we're a lower rainfall environment. There's pretty fair amount of irrigation, um, pop off the Hogalala aquifer. Um, a lot of the water's falling off out in this country. So the irrigation is starting to kind of dwindle out in this country, but, uh, so we're doing a lot of, I guess my, personal thing is I've been doing a lot more work with like low population corn and but yeah corn milo wheat um there are some dry edible beans raised in this area and there's a lot more this year than there ever has been for a long time just with the corn prices and everything but uh yeah it's fairly diversified but um like I said a lot of this country used to be wheat fallow wheat fallow and like I said, when corn took off to eight dollars, a lot of this, a lot of the conservation reserve program acres were broke out of CRP, and and guys were putting those back to um, growing corn and milo and wheat, and um, like I said, that kind of compounded our problem <laughs> we're facing today with uh, over oversupply. But uh, anyway, so yeah, it's I don't know, we're way out here west, and and uh, you never know if we're going to get rainfall or not, so. That is the challenge there on the high plains. Jonathan, when you think about how this year's, let's talk corn crop is shaping up. 
are most of the corn acres under irrigation? Are you seeing some folks do the low pops dry land stuff? What's uh, what's the general sense of the condition of the corn crop out there in western Kansas? If you head toward Hayes and off that country central Kansas, there's some really good looking dry land corn. I thought they were probably um, in pretty tough shape. And we went to the lake there a couple weeks weeks ago, and I was shocked at how good their dry land corn looks through that area. Um, you go north, it looks pretty good. Um, but yeah, just right in this general area. I don't know. I guess maybe we need to start living better, but kind of in a dry spot. But even within the county, there'll be fields that are burnt up. Um, dry land corn that's, you know, I mean, if it started raining today, it's hurt so bad that I don't know if it, it might come back and make 30 bushel or something. But uh, so there's going to be some pretty tough acres out there. Um, but on the flip side, you drive seven, eight miles in another direction and they've caught some rains and the corn looks like it could you know, make a hundred bushel. And for out here, I mean, hundred bushel dry lands, you know, pretty decent corn just because it's very low input um, acres. I mean, guys, just like I said, with our rainfall situation, you can't depend on that. And you can't put a ton of money in the dry land acres with the irrigated overall. I mean, the irrigated corn out here looks really good. Um, knock on wood, we've not had a whole lot of hail this year. And last year we just got pounded through this area. Um, so the, the irrigated acres were pretty tough last year. Um, yields were off for the most part. A lot of it got planted super late. This year, everything got planted on time. Um, I mean, I'd say the, the irrigated's on track to be really, really good in this area. So that's one bright spot, I guess, we have. And Jonathan, uh, looking at your Twitter profile, one of the reasons we reached out to you to have you on the podcast was in your Twitter bio, you say you are a test plot junkie and scrolling through your feed, it looks like you've got a lot going on there. Uh, hopefully your raccoons um, didn't destroy too much of your corn here. But uh, tell us a little bit more about the test plots you do and how you got into doing that. And is it you putting them on or are you working with other farmers in your area to display some of the practices and tools that they're doing? Um, so I started selling seed what 2008 i believe um started out selling seed back then as an independent and then like 2014 i i went to work for a large cooperative frontier ag and was their seed manager for the last five years or so and uh just recently left that position um another outfit took their agronomy side over and, and my my job changed a little bit and seed and kind of soil health has kind of been more my passion. Um, so yeah, I guess that's, I, I don't know. I just, I enjoy the test plots. A lot of farmers I know hate putting them in, um, but where I farm myself and sold seed, I guess, and I plant my own corn. So it's easy, I guess, for, for me to put the test plots in. I learn a ton. I'm walking them all summer long and I probably average, oh, I'd say the last three years, four years, I've averaged probably, five to six test plots, whether it be Milo or um, irrigated Milo, dryland Milo, low population corn, high population, and then um, dryland plots. And um, within those plots, I'll do different populations and maybe uh, different starter programs and just trying to kind of figure out what works out there. We have real high pH soil out here. So that's one thing um, I'm real big on is the in-furrow products and finding what works in furrow out here. Um, yeah, so I guess I, I I enjoy test plots a lot more than than most people probably, but uh, I I learn a ton from them, and then 
I usually have a big field day in September, first week of September, and invite a lot of my customers in and guys from the area and, and uh, put on a nice field day and try to bring in a few, few people to talk about, you know, different topics, whether it be new traits that are coming to the market or, um, you know, bring in uh, different people to talk about the specific products or issues that guys are facing and try to try to shed some light on some things that might work to help them out. But uh, anyway, so yeah, that's kind of what we do with the test plot is just, like I said, try to learn from them so we can pass that information on to guys to help them. Absolutely. Test pots are a great way to see what works in a specific environment. And this year, Jonathan, given the, the lack of rainfall, the dryness, and I know we're still a little ways from harvest. Of course, we're not, uh, we're not done learning from these plots yet. But is there anything this year that's jumping out at you as uh, something you've learned or a takeaway from any of your plots so far this year? Um, I guess one thing I've been posting on Twitter is, and a lot of people are, I guess, uh, not on board with, and I, I was starting to have some serious doubts too, was, um, the, I, I guess the theory called the grand solar minimum. And it's an 11 year cycle, um, with sunspot activity. And, uh, I said, we're, we're supposedly 2020 is we're in the trough of the, the minimum. Um, and it kind of, if you look back over the last several, you know, decades, it kind of lines up with weather events and, and heat we've had and droughts and everything else. But, uh, and like I said, we had a ton of heat here in June, and it was awful. I mean, we had a lot of 95 to 100 degree days, and the wind blew 40 mile an hour every every stinking day. It seemed like, but uh, so a lot of guys were giving me a hard time about. I don't think uh, we're seeing grand solar minimum right now, but um, it's more it's more about uh, solar radiation than actual heat, I think. And so, I mean, I think there's a difference there. I'm not a science guy, but um, just from what I've read on, I think it's more of the, the radiation part. And so what I've been finding the last few years is, uh, as we kind of went into the solar minimum, it's high population corn in my area is not working great. Um, like I said, it's coming down to, I guess, radiation. And, and uh, I feel like the, some of the lower pop corn, population corn is actually doing better if you can find those hybrids that have the flex here. And uh, so that's what I'm kind of seeing going through plots is uh, um, I just feel like, you know, if you guys are crowding, crowding in there too, too much, you're going to see a ton of tip back. And, um, you know, you, you get to, especially in my area, we're 3,900 foot elevation. So our nights cool off a lot and you really, you really need to be brown silk about now. Um, so you have most all the month of August for grain fill. And like I said, it's all, when you get to this point, it's all about making sugar and packing, packing weight into the ear, into those kernels. So, um, that becomes huge. And, and I said, I, I think with, uh, I think some of the, luckily this year, everyone got planted pretty early. Um, I'd say we were done record time in my area. And I think we're going to see some pretty big yields. Um, anything real late planted on irrigated, I think is going to struggle to finish up with the, Given that theory, and like I said, a lot of guys won't agree with me, but I think there's something to it for sure. Absolutely, and I think it's always fascinating to just hear how different, you know, 
you put the crop in differently, you have different challenges in different parts of the country. And it's always interesting to chat with different farmers across the country that have those different challenges and different high points. But Jonathan, before we let you go, uh, being able to connect with folks on Twitter is always important for a lot of our listeners. What is a way or what's your Twitter handle that our listeners can follow you at? I'm just at Jonathan Danzel and, um, I said, I guess, give me a follow. I try to post interesting stuff. And like I said today, I <laughs> found uh, the Coons annihilated a couple hybrids in my test plot that um, were ahead of everything else. So they must have thought it tasted pretty good, but um, I don't know. So, yeah, I try to try to stay on social media and, and get things out there. Fantastic. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much again for coming on and chatting with us today. You bet. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Jonathan Danzel for coming on the podcast today to talk to us. I really enjoyed learning more about his test plots. I thought that was pretty cool. So we might have to just check back in and see how everything goes. You bet. Or a COVID road trip to Northwest Kansas. Anyway, folks, if you want to stay tuned with all the fun we have on the Ag News Daily podcast, hit us up on social media. As I mentioned, it's on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily, or visit our website at agnewsdaily.com. With that, Delaney, shall we let the people go? Let's let them go.